Hey, everybody. Sorry for being a few minutes late there. Uh, my name is Andrew Krauss, and uh, let me move this microphone up here. There we go. And I co-founded InventRight over 21 years ago with Stephen Key, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. We have 12 coaches. We've had students in 65 countries. And what we coach people to do is to license their products so they can bring their product to market. And what licensing is is basically that big company, it's going to be their money, their workforce, and their distribution. So you don't need to start a business. You don't need to raise money. You don't need employees. And you don't need all that that uh, fun stuff. Um, so uh, let's just jump in and start doing some Q&A. Go ahead and type your questions into the questions box. And uh, since some people have, you know, you might not even be aware of it. You have some sort of handle you typed in on YouTube forever ago. Um, type your first name so I can address you by the first name. But if not, no problem. I can address you by your handle. Um, the other thing I'll say is anything I shared today is not considered legal advice. Please consult your attorneys if you're looking for legal advice. So do not consider anything that I share to be legal advice. So let's just jump in. Kevin said, um, hi, Andrew. I'm working on a concept that involves packaging. I know from past videos, Stephen has said to steer clear if you're not familiar with such things with such things, this particular concept would allow would allow a bulk purchase to be bought as a single one-time use. I've made a prototype cheaply, very cheaply, and it works. I've done market search and it's a new idea, but because packaging is such a complex procedure, is it worth my time? So I don't think Steven's telling our fans not to work on packaging products. So what is a packaging product? So like a toothpaste tube, um, the a can of soda. Um, there's all sorts of products that are out there that are disposable products almost always, and they manufacture them in bazillions of units. So um, there are difficulties with a packaging product. We've helped tons of our students work on packaging products, some of them inspired by by Steven's spin label. Um, but if somebody says, oh, I got this packaging one and I got these other two ideas, most of the time I'm gonna go, well, one of those would be a better first project to work on to get some experience and then come back to the packaging product. Or other people go, no, no, I really wanna work on the packaging product. In that case, it's really nice when somebody is a student of ours to work on that really difficult packaging product, which can mean a lot of money. That's the benefit of a packaging product, it can be a lot of money, Big payoff, but very hard deal to close. And I can go into a little bit of that um, why. And then, but then I always I say, you know, have a nice, simple gadget gizmo novelty product. So you can see the stark contrast between a packaging product and a regular consumer product. And then you can decide how to move forward. Some people, they always want, hey, I want that packaging product or that other dream, really difficult product. I want always that, but then I'll always be working on a nice, simple project as well. And then other people are like, I never want to do a difficult project again, crazy difficult like that. And others are like, that's all I want to do. I just want the big treasure chest project. I, I'm not, I wouldn't be happy with 20, 50, even 100K a year in royalties. And I want to go after the big, big money. But I mean, let's say you're earning 100K a year in royalties and it sells for eight years. It's $800,000. That's not small. Let's say it's just making, let's say it's really minimal. And then you're making $20,000 a year but it sells for five years, well, it's $100,000. You've moved on, licensed other products. But some people are like, I just got to go for the big money. Or they're just really passionate about 
that difficult project. And they're just like, I don't care that it might be easier to do another project. This is what I want to do. But at least when I have somebody that works on something like that, I always talk to them and I tell them about all the difficult things in working on a packaging product. And I'll summarize them really quickly here. So when you work on a packaging product, like a toothpaste tube, a soda can, there's a, many other products pr that are the packaging. Um, it could be a box, some unique box of sorts. Um, you need to have a lockdown. This is not true of your typical consumer product or even a lot of industrial products. You need to have a lockdown understanding of manufacturing of that product. That's what it makes it a lot more difficult. Why? Because you have to keep the price down. With some packaging products, if, if it added at one cent to every toothpaste tube, they might go, that's not too much because we sell a bazillion toothpaste tubes a year and we don't like that. Now, they might be like, oh, it has enough of a benefit where that one, one and a half cent increase in the packaging is tolerable because it offers that much benefit. Maybe it's 10, it depends on the product. But it has to be justifiable, that cost increase. And sometimes people have packaging ideas, it's like, dude, that would cost like a dollar, add a dollar to the package. And the companies that are putting their products in that sort of packaging, will be like, hell no, we're not doing that. Um, but so there's a, a ratio between how much is it gonna increase the price of the product? Maybe not at all, maybe it'll reduce the price of the product. And how much, let's say it will increase and how much value is there in that? Now, so if you have a packaging product, I'm talking a lot about packaging product, but you asked Kevin, so I don't mind asking and answering. And I think a lot of folks will, uh, oh, you're from Northern Ireland, that's cool. Um, a lot of folks will benefit from this knowledge. So you have to be willing to play the long game. You know, you could show a product idea, get interest, and you could be doing a deal in like two weeks or two months. The negotiation might drag out. With packaging products, the deals can drag out quite a long time. If you get it done within that year, the provisional patent gives you, you're good. But if you can't, which can happen sometimes with a packaging product, again, normal products never take that long. But packaging products quite often do because... There's this big multinational company quite often. They're making bazillions of toothpaste tubes or this or that. You have to have had a lockdown understanding of manufacturing. You have to make sure you've kept the price down. And then you have to have intellectual property surrounding that. So we've never had one of our students get knocked off by a company they presented to in 21 years that I know of, that I'm aware of. If it's going to happen somewhere, it's going to happen in packaging because there's so much money at stake. And, you know, it's a disposable item. It's the package. And there's so much money at stake that if you don't have a pretty good provisional patent or patent, you should not, you're not going to license. You could license a novelty thing, go, I don't have a patent. They'd be like, we don't care. You know, but in a packaging product, you have to have strong intellectual property, manufacturability, and ideally manufacturability without too much modification of the existing production line. So all these things come into play that if you've got a new kitchen gadget, if you've got a new gardening trowel, if you've got a new automotive product, these don't come into play and you don't need to do all this stuff. So it's brutal, uh, the packaging product. So these are the things. This is your checklist, Kevin. Can I sell it at the same or lower price? That's a really good indicator. You can sell at a higher price, whatever the existing solution is, but you have to ask yourself, is it offering that much benefit? Because that's just profit away from them. Now, if it gets people to buy that product with that package over somebody else, then they might be able to justify it. But for the most part, 
I'm giving very gross generalizations here. If it's like $5 more for the package, that probably ain't going to cut it. Depends on the product though, but okay. Um, you need to get deep into manufacturing, you know, and they will try to find a way around you as far as the intellectual property, the patent goes, if they can, because uh, they're, you know, there's just so much money at stake and companies doing packaging products are a little, they're not, um, they're not like regular consumer product companies. Um, and they're very technical. And so hopefully that was helpful, Kevin. I rambled quite a bit on that. It, but if you really believe in it and you're willing to dedicate, I would say if you're doing a package drive, be willing to dedicate a year of your life to it. Now, you can have your day job. You can work on another small project. You can do that. But it's not like you're going to show it and you're going to get feedback pretty quick and you do a deal or you don't. Um, it's going to drag. They drag and drag and drag and drag. Um, and Steve, my business partner, has worked on packaging products. He can attest to that. It'll drag and drag and drag, sometimes for some people for years. Um, so it's it's a tough one. But if you really believe in it and it meets all that criteria and you're willing to do the work, fine. I don't think it's the greatest first project. Would I be more comfortable, which is what I tell all our new students, work on this nice, simple project, get your feet wet, the basics of licensing, then work on the packaging product. Um, so, but that's not a always, always kind of thing, you know. Um, another person from Northern Ireland, Mark Brown. Um, Mark says uh, from, from Northern Ireland, hey, Andrew, thanks for taking the time to do the Q&As. They're very helpful. Yeah, it must be like, mm, I guess it's like uh, 1219 for you right now. It's kind of late at night. Um, they're very helpful and informative. But not legal advice. Yes. No, not legal advice. Um, any tips on how to be more productive in the coming in coming up with ideas as I seem to think of some ideas when in work and write down quick notes, then try to elaborate on them when I get home. Thanks again for any information you provide. Um, I think it's very important to write it down or you can even do a voice memo into your smartphone. Um, creating your idea because sometimes you you have great ideas as an inventor, but you're in the middle of other stuff. And to even write it down as a note, you might not have the time, but to pick up your phone, providing there's nobody around, you don't feel silly. Or what, what the hell? Feel silly. You know, it's, it's an invention. It's important. And you speak into your phone like an audio note, and then you go back and look at that. My best advice, so your any advice coming up with new ideas? My best advice is what I've offered here before is, don't try to randomly come up with ideas. Most inventors do that. Most of our students, like you ask what their processes and they're like, I don't know, it just comes to me. Start happening to you one day. Um, but study a micro category on Google images. And I always give this example, like you can't become an expert at all barbecue accessories in a day, you can't. But you could spend an hour looking at barbecue accessories and then you could go, huh, everybody has barbecue spatulas. So why don't I study barbecue spatulas for another hour? You start studying and you're like, hmm, I'm into this. Everybody uses barbecue spatulas. It's just a random example, guys. Don't do barbecue spatulas. But, um, and you, let's say you spent two hours. You know, in two to three hours, you could become an expert at every single barbecue spatula on the market, their price, what the benefits are. These are the things you're looking at, the price, the benefits, um, how it's being marketed, if it's showing up in a lot of places, just some places. So, and you're not inventing anything now. So again, 
study a microcategory. A microcategory is not all barbecue accessories. There's too many. So you could study that broad category for a little bit, maybe 30 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe an hour. Then you pick a microcategory like barbecue spatulas. You study that for literally two or three hours, which is fun. What's nice about it is as an inventor, when you come up with ideas, you you don't research it properly because you don't want to find it. Maybe you do a little half-assed research. This is so common I've seen over the last 21 years. Maybe you do a great job researching, but a lot of people don't. Now you've been thinking about it for three months, six months, a year, two years, five years. So now an event right coach, if you ever become an event right student, is putting the screws to you going, no, I need all the information. I need to know everything else that's out there in the space. And the inventor has anxiety about that because they're afraid of what they're going to find. And they do a half-assed search. And the coach is like, no, that's not good enough. You need to search. And, and there's subconsciously or consciously not really trying to find stuff. So when you come up with something, if you just come up with something randomly, search it on Google Images right away. Do a very, very thorough search. But here's a way you don't even need to do that. Don't come up with an invention. Study a microcategory like barbecue spatulas or whatever else. Understand it all. You know the market now. Now invent. So there's five over here that do this. There's eight that do this. Maybe you're inventing a variation of something that's selling well. You're like, oh, there's eight companies selling more or less the same product there. Why don't I give one of them a leg up with some little improvement? So it's not that it has to be so different. Sometimes there's a slight change on something you see that's selling well. And other times it's like, well, there's this gap in the marketplace. There's things here and here, but nothing here. And then you invent like that. But you're inventing with the marketplace in mind. You're observing the micro category, becoming an expert, which is fun because now you don't have anxiety about it because you haven't came up with an invention. You're studying barbecue spatulas for two or three hours. Now, you might not come up with the invention then. You might be driving. You might be in the shower. You might come back to your computer and look at all your images and your notes about barbecue spatulas or whatever else you study. And then you come up with it. Don't force it. Because when you study a category for three hours and then you're four, and really you can invent while you're doing that, but that can be, you really want to focus on what everything is and then come back and go, what am I going to invent now? Okay. So that was a really long ramble, Mark, but that is the ultimate way to invent, not randomly coming up with ideas, which is the way probably 95% of our students before they come to us. And quite frankly, after they come to us, a lot of our students, they have so many ideas. They're not like some of them, most of them asking, like, show me new techniques for coming up with ideas. And they're the ones that do. I love that because then they can do what I just explained. So if you just want to come up with new ideas, Mark, you can come up with them randomly. Talk, do a voice note into your cell phone if you don't have time to write it down or write it down. Um, sometimes you can verbalize it a little better than write it. And you look, look, look at your note and you're like, I don't know what I was thinking there. You know, but if you verbalize it, you could talk for five minutes and you could look back and go, oh, I know what I was thinking. Right. Because it's because we don't always write the way that we think, but we quite often will speak the way that we think, especially if it's a note to ourselves. So that's a tip. But study a micro category, then invent for it. That is a rocking way to invent. I suggest every inventor do that. Inventors don't do that enough, and they suffer tremendously for it afterwards. Now, if you become an event right student, we force you to do that research. We don't care what you find. The world is the world. The market is the market. We're not going to put blinders on, pretend like these other things don't exist. But a lot of times people think, well, if similar things exist, well, oh, God, mine's not you know, so unique. 
one thing you should never, ever say as an inventor, ever, there's no situation where you should ever say that there's nothing like it. Never say that. Never, ever say that to a company. And don't say it to yourself either. You're programming yourself. Don't do that. And if there's things that are somewhat like it and yours is a variance of it, that's a very good thing. There's some companies that want things that are really different. There's other ones that are like, eh, too risky. Oh, there's eight companies selling that. And then you have a variation of it. Yeah, we're up for that. So it's not, um, it's different for everybody. Definitely. Um, let's see. So two, so Kevin and Kevin, Kevin didn't say he was from Northern Ireland, did he? It was just uh, Mark. Sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, Kevin did too. You guys both are. Okay. You guys probably sit in the same room together or something. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff said, this is it. I love what you guys are saying. And whenever I comment what you guys are saying, it's the, for the benefit of everybody. So don't ever feel like I'm being critical in any way, shape or form or very supportive. Um, so when I'm saying something, it's for a lesson for everybody. And I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong. Jeff said, if it seems that I'm getting more, it seems that I'm getting more favorable initial response from Canadian companies than U.S. Is that a real trend that you've noticed or just me? It's just you, um, Jeff. And this, but this, I'm going to go to a bigger picture here. When inventors are new to licensing and you haven't experienced reaching out for multiple products to many different companies, it's very common that people will um, have one experience and then assume that is normal. So now the nice thing about having an event right coach is you say, this is what I experienced or this is what they sent. And <clears throat> the coach will tell you if it's normal or not. And sometimes they'll go, well, that's not normal at all. That's so weird. I've literally never seen that before, but this is how I would respond. And uh, other times they'll go, oh, you're going to get that all the freaking time. And here's how you're always going to respond. So it's nice to have an expert giving it context. The inventors will, inventors will quite often make assumptions like this is normal. It happened to me twice, so therefore it's just prevalent, and it's not, all right? Now, some things will be like, oh, that happens sometimes. That happens like never. Um, that happens all the freaking time. So, um, Jeff, I haven't experienced anything more positive from invention Canadian companies than U.S. companies. What I would say is it is easier to license to Canadian U.S. companies than European companies. Um, and where are European students, they always reach out to U.S. and Canadian companies as well. We have plenty of students that have done deals with Europe. You should approach European companies. And when I say European company, I'm going to define what I mean by that. I don't mean a very large European company or Asian company that's big in the U.S. As far as I'm concerned, they're a U.S. company then. Does that, I, I don't want to confuse it. But if they're really huge in the U.S., They've got offices here. They've got that's the same as a U.S. company. If they got a really big, it's the ones that are maybe they're only a little in the U.S., but they're like eighty percent in Europe. Those ones are a little bit harder to license to than U, U.S. and Canadian companies. Um, but there's really I haven't noticed any difference from Canada or the U.S. I'd say they're just about equal. There's less companies in Canada. Definitely a way smaller percentage of your potential licensees are going to be in Canada. Canada is a very big country, but uh, population-wise and economic-wise. But again, same thing applies. If it's a Canadian company that's really big in the U.S., that's the same as a U.S. company to me. So, um, But I, that's one of those things you really shouldn't overthink. Now, it's a good question, though, Jeff, because like I have some student that's in Indonesia because we have a student in 65 countries. 
student that is in um, Thailand, um, student that's in a country in Africa. I tell them, look, you're not going to focus on your home country. You don't, you're not restricted by your home country. I don't care what's going on. It could be people living in poverty, you know, 10 blocks from your house. It doesn't make any difference. Companies only care about the product you're showing to them and do not limit yourself to your local economy. I say that sometimes I have students that live in tiny little towns in the US. Oh, but I live in this little town. I'm like, so what? Makes no difference. They just want a good idea. There's no difference between somebody in New York, an inventor, and somebody that is in the middle of um, a very remote, uh, tiny little town with a population of 100. They don't care. So same thing for foreign students. You know, they can reach out uh, to U.S. and Canadian companies just like anybody else. And I don't care if you have an accent or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. They don't, they don't care. So there's still – there's a lot of upsides and downsides to the United States, you know. Um, but one thing that's still part of our psyche is, is like marketing managers, people in these corporations, there's this feeling like anybody can make it. And, and I think there's that in Canada to a certain extent as well. So, and in some other countries, like in Australia, I've had Australian students share this and they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Like a big company might be like, who are you? You're just an individual. And the tall poppy meaning you, you cut the tall poppy down. It's a plant, you know, a flower that grows up and you cut it down. So, um, you know, if somebody was in Australia, I'd say you're not going to be focusing on Australia. If you got some Australian companies, great, contact them, no problem. But um, unless they're big in the U.S., they're going to be less likely to license from you. Can you license to them? Yes. But I would never want somebody to restrict themselves to their home country and not reach out to Canadian U.S. companies. There's just this entrepreneurial vibe that anybody can make it. And that vibe even runs through the corporate people that are in corporate America. And they, it's part of our psyche. So that's the reason why you see more licensing deals happening here. Um, but don't don't hesitate to reach out in your home country. You got students that license products in the UK and other countries and things, um, or they're you know Asia not so much. But those Asian companies that are really big in the US and have marketing and distribution, like I said, to me it's the same as an American company with regards to are they going to be open or not. Um, uh, let's see. Joel says, uh, "Oh, Mark." Oh, uh, Joel said to Mark, I've been reading a book called Idea Spotting by Sam Harrison. It's about how to come up with more ideas. Oh, cool. Idea Spotting. I've never read that book, Joel. Thank you for the recommendation. Um, sounds like a fun one to check out. My advice is really basic, but it's really powerful. Um, I think there are a lot of books like random idea ways to come up with ideas, like you mix two products together, you do this, you do that. And if they're covering that sort of thing in idea spotting, great. But I would also study a micro category first and then come up with ideas because it's always based in the marketplace. You can come up with crazy ideas all day long, but if it doesn't make sense with the other products in that space, you know, um, then you can be a giant waste of time. Uh, Gabriel, is there a scenario where a potential ICD want to purchase the patent, but you want to license it only? Uh, is there a setup where you can license with the option to buy later? So, Gabriel, um, I cover this almost every time, but um, I think it's an important one. 
you do not want to ask companies to buy your idea. You don't want to use the word ever. I want you to sell you my patent. That's major rookie move one or one. You're not selling your patent or your prototype. You're selling the benefit of your product. So never say I want you to sell my patent. It gets the whole focus onto the patent and not on the product. It's just wrong as far as a sales funnel goes. It's completely wrong. So never say that. Um, never bring up that you want to sell it to them outright. Never, never, never. Totally, total rookie move. Um, when they bring it up, usually it means they want to offer you some crappy deal. That's what it usually means. I'm okay with them bringing it up, but you always redirect it back to doing uh, a royalty per unit. Okay. Um, yeah, you can do, I don't recommend really moving forward with bizarre deals when you can just do deals that work. Could you do a royalty per unit? And when it gets a certain amount, they can buy you out, you know, but the thing is when a company is investing tens of thousands of dollars, or maybe even a hundred thousand or more to launch a new product, they don't want to pay you a bunch of upfront money. It's, it's, it's bad vibes all around. Even giant freaking companies don't want to do that. So they don't want to do it. Why would a smaller, medium-sized company want to do it? So just don't do it. Now, as I always say, the exception would be like, if you've been manufacturing, selling your product, your distribution in 10,000 stores, you want to sell your company with the inventory and the distribution in all those stores, and um, you've done that, and you want to also get a royalty, okay, then some sort of buyout makes sense. But it, you, you really don't want to do that buyout thing. It's just, um, they will never pay you what it's worth. Like on a product, it could be earning you 100K a year. And if it sells for eight years, it's 800K. Like I would be shocked if they would offer you 50K for it up front because they don't know how well it's done yet. And you, it's just, when you look at that, you're making the process up in your head. It's not the way licensees thinks. It's not what you should be doing. Those deals do not get closed. You'll never get paid what it's worth. Now, with that said, might there be a half a percent or 1% where there's an exception? That's what I always say when you teach your students. Look, when you watch a YouTube show or you're getting coached by us, it's it's not always black and white. There's shades of gray. Now, when you're getting coached by us, the coach can go over your specific shade of gray and go, okay, no, it would make sense in your rare instance, right? So whenever you hear me say things, sometimes we have new students that have been watching YouTube show and they come on and they say, well, but Andrew said or Steven said on YouTube show and the coach is like, it's not that black and white all the time. So you give a general basis that works most of the time. And then you need you start to use your instincts once you've had some experience, especially when you've been coached to figure things out and you start to get the vibe of it. But um, so I like I like that question. Who is that from? Um, that was from. Okay. All right. So another question from Mark, do you know any groups in Belfast to help inventors, product developers? Um, I have never met an inventor that went to an invention promotion company and had a product licensed ever. But I talked to somebody every other day at the very least that's been taken for 10 or 12 grand. They never licensed the product. Our students license stuff all the time. So there's a ton of companies out there that say, we'll work on your product. Who knows? And sometimes you'll ask them, who have you called? They won't even tell you. Or they'll give you the list, but the inventor couldn't prove it. You could call the company. Oh, did so-and-so call? They're like, I don't know. You know, and so there are, tons of companies in the UK, in the US and around the world that prey on inventors hopes and dreams. They say they're going to try to license it for you, but their whole model is to kind of pretend they're working on it and a year later go, "Oh, no, there's no interest." And they don't even tell you who they're calling. You know, 
our students, you know you're in the game because you're reaching out, you know what's happening, right? That's the big difference between us and an invention promotion company. So um, Mark, if you, if you look for somebody to do it for you and license the product for you, you're going to find an endless list of shysters. If you go to inventorfraud.com, inventorfraud.com, there are jump up off points to the Federal Trade Commission. That's a U.S. agency for um, policing people that do false advertising and not so legit stuff. And there's also some jump off points to the patent office. The Federal Trade Commission is probably going to be the most productive. Um, and follow those links at inventorfraud.com just so you know, like, oh, geez, I didn't know that there's all these people out here scamming inventors. They don't steal your invention. They just give you false hope, pretend to work on it, and they go, oh, nobody, and then you're out. For most of these companies, like 10 or 12 grand, there's a couple out there that will try to get you for around six. Um, with us, you know you're doing it because your coach is guiding you and you're making the calls and you know what they said, and you don't have to rely on hearsay. But um, if you insist on going down that path, you're gonna get you're gonna get screwed. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, Gabriel was the one that asked about selling out, right? Good question, Gabriel. These are all good questions. Um, okay, and Anilton, and so I can't. I can put my old man glasses on here. Anilton, yeah, I was so trip out on that name. Uh, hi, Andrew. I'm here every time you come on and still going strong. Good for you, Anilton. Yeah, not, not everybody that's going to watch our YouTube show is going to become an event right student, get coached by a coach, but we always want to provide great, great information. Um, we had uh, somebody this morning I just sent over, Steven sent it over, and we had a, a fan that had been following um, our YouTube show. It actually didn't license a product, but he's like, I'm getting like tons of interest. Thank you so much. And we do get that sometimes. I I would have to say that it's it's a lot more rare that I get a fan of a YouTube show that licenses a product compared to a coaching student because they're not getting their hand held and they get off track and stuff. But we're all about providing as much information as possible so that if you want to go it on your own, you can. You can also get our book, One Simple Idea, which is, I don't know what it is on Amazon, 13, 15 bucks, something like that. That's a great book. Um, and that actually guys the same 10 steps that we got our students with, but you're not getting the handholding. You can't ask it a question. Oh, but for my project, what's the next step? What should I do here? How can I find more companies? You know, um, yeah, Gabriel also asked inventor has an invention patent in multiple territories. Can you do licensing agreements to cover the worldwide distribution or is it territory by territory? You can actually, there, there's lots of tricks. I'll give you one example. So, I've had quite a few students back when I used to help with negotiations. Now we have a negotiation coach, Paul. And the, the inventor was, um, they were either from Europe or they were from the U.S., didn't matter. But uh, they had interest from a U.S. company. And this company, let's say they sold like 80% of their product in the U.S. and 20% in Europe. And they came back. They're not all hard-ass like this all the time. It's actually quite the opposite. But say they are sometimes. And they came back and said, well, yeah, we'll do this deal for you in the U.S., but we're not going to pay you anything in Europe because you don't have patents there. And the inventor said, well, if you want to do the licensing deal with me in the U.S., you know, are you planning on file patents over there? And they're like, well, I don't know. It's like, really? So you have leverage. So you got a U.S. provisional for 75 bucks, and he used that as leverage to get them to also pay them royalties in a place he has no patents at all in Europe. 
And they didn't sell that much in Europe. So there's all sorts of techniques that we use and have used over the years that get those deals done. And um, you'll companies will never be as knowledgeable because about licensing as we are, because they don't do licensing all day long. Maybe they license 10, 15 products, maybe they license three or four, maybe two. Um, but they're not going to be as knowledgeable as us. So we we have comebacks for all this stuff. I don't even like to call it a comeback because that seems combative, but we make it make sense and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, um, I guess that's fair, you know. So sometimes they need a week or two to think on it and they come back and they they agree. It's very common. Um, let's see. Let's get some new questions from some people we haven't gotten to. Uh, Deidre, hi, Andrew, love you guys. We love you too, Deidre. Uh, uh, okay, Hassan says, hi, Andrew, how many units uh, pro should a product sell per week, per month in a physical store in order to be kept on the shelves? Can you give a number for a cheap accessory, $15 and one that costs $50 or more? So one of the things that, that Steve and I have, have shared and, you know, if you look at how many stores they're in, they're like, we're going to put in all the Walmart stores or whatever it is. And you looked at one unit per month, per week, sorry, one unit per week per store. Uh, you could kind of figure out like, well, geez, you, you know, if you're not going to sell that, the store is probably going to pull it. So you can agree to at least that minimum guarantee. So just, now sometimes there's a lot of online sales going right now, and that's not always that easy. But if they say they're going to put it in particular stores, I would say one per week per store. Again, this is very... It's not black and white, it's shades of gray, Hassan, but I would expect them to sell one per week per store. Now, it depends. Is it a $900 product or is it a $0.99 cent product or $15 product? But for, let's say, the, the $9 to $30 category, they're not going to want to keep it on their shelf, a major retailer, um, if it's not selling one unit per week per store. I mean, some stores it might not sell only and another one that sells three or four or something like that. But so hopefully that answers your question. Um, but that's kind of a way to figure out like, oh, they're going to sell at least this if they're selling the brick and mortar. But if they're like selling exclusively on Amazon, some other online retailers, there's not a number of stores to calculate that with. So it's a little, um, little harder. Um, uh, Joanne said, just got a patent pending and have sold some product. Would like to license what is the best first step? So, well, you can read our book, One Simple Idea, Joanne, which, which goes into the 10 steps. But the first step is always study the marketplace. And so just because you got patent pending and you sold a few didn't mean you did a good job studying the marketplace. So I'd always go back, really look at all the products in the space. And your goal is not to prove nothing like it exists. That is the wrong mindset. Your product is to go, what are all the products that your goal is to go, what are all the products that are adjacent to mine that are maybe serving the same benefit or similar benefit, but I'm delivering it a different way or just somewhat the same, maybe 75% the same benefit. And look at all those products in that space. Then you're going to make a marketing piece. Then you're going to make your list of companies. And then you're going to reach out to those companies. That's oversimplifying it. But you need to make sure you have a very good um, marketing piece. So, and you're going to use, we guide our students to reach out both on LinkedIn and on the phone. You really got to do both. Sometimes people just don't respond on LinkedIn, marketing managers. Sometimes they're just like, it just goes into voicemail hell. 
But that same person you couldn't get on LinkedIn, pick up the phone. The gatekeeper's like, oh, no, that's 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 Larry. Just send it to him at Larry at XYZ Company. And you're like, well, that was easy. So I like just picking up the phone first, but a lot of people are afraid of calling. When you realize that when you're reaching out to companies, um, you're just asking permission to send your marketing piece. You're not pitching. So if you just want to pick up the phone, Joanne, that's great. If you want to build up your LinkedIn profile and then start reaching out to some companies, marketing managers on LinkedIn, that's great as well. But you asked what your first step is. And a lot of inventors didn't really study all the other products in that space. So if you've done that, great. If you haven't, do it. And then work on your marketing materials. And your marketing materials need to be that much better when you're trying to license. They need to see your marketing materials and go, in six to 10 seconds, probably about six seconds. Oh, if our customers saw that, they would want it. So if you're if they're doing gardening products, like, oh, if if this profile they're thinking in their head, oh, I can sell that. You want them to look at it and say, I can sell it. So your marketing piece is not for the company. It's for their consumer. And they will see it and go, oh, yeah, if our customers saw this, they would buy it. And people suck at that. And even people that are professional marketers, that when they do their own product, I see them suck at that. So never hesitate to double, triple check um, that your marketing is good. And I've given this tip here before. Do the computer test. Put your sell sheet. If it's a PDF sell sheet or if it's a video, whatever it is, put it on the computer. This will only work if it's somebody. could be a friend, could be a stranger, could be a relative. They could be super critical. They could be um, super approving. It doesn't matter. But it has to be somebody you've never talked to your invention before about. Stand behind the computer, tell them to click on the link to look at it, and look at their eyes and listen to them. And if they ask questions, don't say anything. Just let them keep asking questions. Say nothing. Um, and and by the questions they ask and the look on their face, you know, they have advanced software that can do this where you have a webcam and you're not going to do it this way. And you see a website and they'll get people to come on and it will track their eyes as to where their eyes go on the website. You don't need to pay a dime for this. So make sure your marketing is good. Make sure it makes sense in the marketplace. Make sure it makes sense at the right price point and then start reaching out. That's just the basics, Joanne. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, Derek said, I'm concerned about bringing my version of this product to market, even with a patent, because it clearly doesn't seem to matter, especially on Amazon. Can companies knock off without consequences? Um, so one of the best forms of protection is not a patent. It's licensing it to a big company. Because a big company, what they can do is get it first to market. So you're right, Derek, sometimes. And that's why I don't recommend... Um, uh, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, crowdfunding campaigns, because they can, some people control Kickstarter, Indiegogo, these crowdfunding campaigns, see a product's taking off and launch it and have it selling on Amazon before you even finish your Kickstarter campaign. That's why you guys shouldn't be publicly disclosing your product. And especially not in one of those campaigns. So the best protection is first to market. When you license this huge company, right? And they have retail distribution, Amazon distribution everywhere. And they blow it out there big, hard and fast. That's the best form of protection ever. And then people start to knock it off. And if your guys are selling 80% of it and the knockers are selling 20%, and guess what? When that big company you license to sends a cease and desist to that little guy that's knocking off, they're afraid most. 
are afraid. And it literally cost them next to nothing because they just got their attorney to send a cease and desist letter. They didn't need to sue or engage or take you to court or stuff like that. And it usually scares a lot of little guys off, you know. But if you're venturing this product on your own, like Joanne, and you go, oh, you're knocking me off. They might go, who's she? She's nobody. She, where does she have distribution? She doesn't have distribution in any stores, just selling it on her website. They might not take her so seriously. So um, licensing it to a very large company and them being first to market and threatening anybody that tries to knock it off is a major form of protection. But you're right. Amazon it is a problem. Um, but when they're knocking it off with the trademark and they're copywriting the same instructions, th those are easy to protect. Amazon takes those down real quick when it's like a complete knockoff, like it's a counterfeit, right? Um, but I, I can, what else I can say is this. We got students licensing all the time here. I, I, it's pretty rare that I have students to go, oh, I licensed this product and the knockoffs are messing me up. Usually it's like, my, the company is so successful and they're doing so well, they got a few knockoffs. What's the problem? That's just reality, right? And that's okay. To think that a patent, which is your mindset, and Derek, and I think you're right, to think it's going to prevent anybody from doing anything remotely in that space and you just hit them over the head with this giant bat, it's, it's not true. You're absolutely right. But it is perceived protection and most people play by those rules. So, but for you not to work on your projects, as you see some people getting knocked up on Amazon, no, man. And if you're, if you can't, it sounds like you're accepting of that. If you're not accepting of that, don't do this. But I don't see that really being a big problem for students that license products because it's not them that's selling it. It's this big company. The big company takes care of their business, especially if they're making a bunch of money. They're going to do what's necessary, you know? Um, Oh, this is interesting. Uh, so we got about nine minutes left. Uh, Jane, sorry if I'm not pronouncing. I think it's Jaina. Jaina. Sorry if I didn't pronounce it right. As a packaging engineering student, this is interesting. I developed a prototype of a packaging, of packaging, and sent it to a student competition. It is one of the association websites since March 21. Since I got an award, can I still file a PPA? Um, you know, so if you did, it depends if you made public disclosure, if you, if you did, if you publicly disclose a product and you haven't filed a provisional or a patent and it more than a year has passed, anything that has been publicly disclosed can no longer be patented. Now, if you come up with an improvement on top of that, you can patent that. But, um, so, but here's the, the way I would approach it. I wouldn't worry about it, Jana. If you, if you believe it's a good product, I would file a PPA so the answer is yes, you can file a PPA. So even if you disclose your product had features A and B in it, right? And you're like, oh, I want to work on this. I want to submit it to some packaging companies. And you want to address C, something new you came up with since then that you hadn't publicly disclosed. And it's been more than a year. Um, you could just write a provisional and cover all of it, but cover that C thing, that new thing you didn't cover before that you publicly disclosed in the competition and you can get coverage for that and legally say patent pending. So what you're really selling is the benefit of the product. Now, because it's a packaging product, we talked at the top. I'm, I don't know if Jana, if you were here at the very top of the meeting, but packaging companies are brutal. You need to have lockdown understanding of the manufacturing. You're a design student, so that's good. But then you have to have a lockdown understanding of the patentability surrounding the manufacturing. So it's a 
brutal, brutal industry. It's very, very tough, but you can make a lot of money. Um, so hopefully that was that was helpful. But I don't recommend most people to make their first project a packaging product. I When I get somebody that signs up that has that, I discourage them, but they still want to do it. And they're like, no, I'm up for everything you just explained, Andrew. And then I'm like, great, we'll help you. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Jermaine, we get this a lot. I notice when people get deals, it seems to be with the company and that it, it is it, even though there are more companies in that space to license to, is there a reason not to license to multiple companies? Yeah, I cover this on almost every session too, Jermaine, but it's a good question. And you wrote, or does the licensee contract with that initial company dictate that? Okay, so it's whatever deal you cut. So if you have, and again, this is shades of gray, depending on your product, but the, the vast majority of the time, you're going to be doing one deal with one company. But that's not always true. I have plenty of students that look at them like, oh, yeah, you could do a couple deals here. You're going to do, and it can be broken out by geography. Let's say a company sells in the U.S. And they and you're like, they want worldwide rights. And you go, no, you just give them U.S. rights. And they're like, well, okay. Um, or maybe... They this type of product could be sold in convenience stores or big box stores. And the one selling the big box store is okay with it selling a different, cheaper version in a convenience store. So distribution channels, you can, you can break it out that way. Um, but here's the thing. If you're selling on the exact same shelf at Walmart, a big box store, and they're, it's the same product, they're stepping on each other's toes. That makes no sense whatsoever. They don't have a point of difference. That's the whole point in licensing the product from you. So they have these delusions that you're going to license it to 10 companies. And you have to realize when you license it to a really big company, they have huge distribution. You're giving them a point of difference. That's why they want to license to you. This thought that you're going to license it around the world to 20 companies, does that apply sometimes? Yes, not most of the time. You should be happy doing a deal in most situations with one company because if they're both these companies, two companies are selling in the same space or eight or 10, it just doesn't make sense. They've got no point of difference, you know, and they want that point of difference over their competitor, which is the reason why you get to close a licensing deal to begin with. Now, do I see scenarios where, like, let's say you get a new vacuum cleaner and you're licensing it to a company that makes consumer vacuum cleaners? They don't make industrial janitorial vacuum cleaners. Why would you give that to them? Pull that out. Make sure that's not in the contract, you know, and that you have the rights to license to commercial applications. Then go to another company. It's going to be another list of companies quite often and license it to an industrial vacuum cleaner company because they're not stepping on each other's toes. Why should you give the rights to a, a consumer vacuum company if they don't sell to janitors? And this product would be great for janitors as well with a different version, higher end, stainless steel more durable parts. I mean, companies just make stuff to fall apart these days, right? So um, so that's a few examples of that. But the thought that you're going to be better off if you license to multiple companies, it's just simply not true. It's not realistic. Does it apply sometimes? Absolutely, it does. But, um, you know, so let's see. So you find somebody new here. Um Okay. Uh, this person had an ask a question. Alexis, thank you for the question. Hi, Andrew. I have a PPA on a product and I have a prototype. A company in Canada is interested. Another Canadian company. That's funny. Maybe you guys are going to prove me wrong there. Just joking. Two instances is not a sample size of experience. 21 years is. Um, a Canadian company interested in it, but he would like 
to have a video of the product on their website to test the market interest. Okay. Um, interesting. I mean, sometimes uh, they want to do, but, you know, get in the specifics. This is great. He's interested. You know, he wants to see how many clicks he gets. Be very specific. Is he looking for clicks? Is he looking for actual orders? Like, what does he want to verify? Now, I mean, most of the time a marketing manager, they look at and go, oh, my gut instinct is that our customers are going to want this, right? And really, when they're really, those those are the type that I get, that I, that I like. Those are the type that you really like. But when they're like, oh, you know, we got to do this and that. And that's fine, too. Maybe they'll, they, they, they can do that. But you, you have to realize that that's public disclosure then. Starts the one-year on-bar rule from ticking. You have to figure out what would they be happy with. So say to them, like, so you're going to go by clicks. You're going to go by purchases. What do we need? What would make you happy? What's enough? You know, because he might go, well, if I don't get a million clicks, you know, figure out if he's being realistic. So you're figuring out literally if it's worth your time to do that. Um, but, you know, another thing that you could suggest is have his manufacturer's reps um, it, it depends on the product and where they're selling it, how they're selling it. Talk to buyers at stores. That's quite odd. That's what they do more often. What you're saying is very unusual. Again, remember earlier I said things that are normal, things that aren't. That's not normal. Um, that they're going to put it on their website with a video to see if people are interested. Like, I can't remember the last time I heard that. But them saying, oh, we want to show it to our manufacturer's rep who's going to visit with the buyer at this store and that store. We want to see what, how they feel about it. That's very common. So you might suggest that they do that rather than putting it up on the website. Um, see what their buyers, uh, what kind of interest they have. Um, one more minute. Yeah. Um, well, it's what set sad. Sedege, S-A-D-E-G-H, Sedege, I think. So what identity or information do licensors need for the contract? I live in Iran, and I'm worried if I cannot, I'm not recognized as a valid entity. So for almost every other country besides Iran, Sedege, um, I think I got pronouncing it right, actually, now, uh, although you're not, the opportunity to correct me, um, you're good. But like we get stu we get inventors from Iran and we've looked at the rules and technically and some really nice people from Iran. I watched this travel show the other day where this guy traveled throughout Iran. Iranian people are I was surprised. I was surprised. I shouldn't say that at all. I didn't mean that. I, I was happy to see that the Iranian people were so friendly and so giving and and people in their government are not one of the same. But literally we cannot sell a coaching membership, which I think is silly. These are just people living in Iran to somebody in Iran. We can't coach and mentor and take their money from Iran. And that sucks. So, um, you know, you're going to need to figure out what you need to do there. Um, if you do a contract, maybe you work with somebody that's living in another country and you work with them as a partner and then you do the deal with them and maybe a partner or a friend of yours or family member or something that living in another country, and then you're fine. So I, in that rare instance, I, you know, they're not going to ask, so I wouldn't even bring it up. I would just show, see if they're interested in the product. 
And if you're working with somebody in another country, I think that's legit. Don't quote me on that. You need to look it up. But they don't care what country you're from. But Iran, the U.S. government has this, it's a U.S. company, these rules right now that we're not supposed to be doing business with Iran. You know, and I don't know if that'll change. I wouldn't let that you, I wouldn't hesitate moving forward with your deals today to do that. But when it comes to the contract, you're going to need to have a family, friend, member or something. And you do the deal technically in another, another country, you know, um, but you need to look in those, those deals. All as I know is we can't take on a student from Iran, which I think is stupid because you're just an inventor, just like everybody else on here. You're just trying to learn how to license your product and it might actually benefit a U.S. company. They get this new product that's out there. I, I don't know why that's the policy, but I know that's the policy right now. But in other countries, they just don't care. That, that's the only country I can think of where that's the case, um, which is crazy. Um, yeah, that's terrible. So I, I feel bad for you uh, today, but I think you can I would move forward with your projects regardless. Um, All right, so I think we hit we hit the hour here. Um, okay, Anthony said, "Yeah, welcome, Anthony." Um, so I want to ask a favor of you guys: um, if you're already subscribed, don't click on the subscribe button again, but because then that unsubscribes you, I think. But if you could subscribe, I would like to go from. 49,000, however many people we have right now, to 80,000 next six, eight months. I don't know if that's possible, but I hear once it starts to get going, it spirals. Um, we're the biggest player in the space in this area, but I would still like to get a lot more uh, subscribers. So if you really valued the, this uh, Q&A, which is completely free, please subscribe, watch a bunch of our videos, click thumbs up. We'd like to get to 80,000 subscribers in the next six or eight months. And that could be something you do me as a favor because I see a bunch of people thanking me um, for the chat. So um, if there's any other thank yous you want to put in there, I never copy those, but it'd be nice. If you have any thank yous to me after I end, I'll kind of keep it up for a little bit. Um, I don't know if you guys can still type after I click end. I'm not, don't think you can actually, but um, anyway, so that's, that's about it guys. Um, I want to remind you guys, I don't need to remind you, but, Coming with ideas is part of who you are, most of you. Um, it just happened to you one day, so you got to do this. Whether you're doing it on your own or whether you, uh, we're helping you coach or whether you read our books or whether you get information somewhere else or help somewhere else, but you have to do this. And I think in InventRight, what we're showing you is you can do it very affordably and you'll never run out of money using the InventRight approach. If you read our book, One Simple Idea, you realize that you watch our YouTube show. So a lot of people feel really empowered by our approach because it is empowering. It's extremely empowering. So um, make sure to keep following us and uh, we'll remind you to take care and keep inventing. And we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.